the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, Sarah, and a pleasant good afternoon. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 6th of April. Made it halfway through the week, have we? So, uh, listen, it can only get worse or better from here, right? (laughs) Hey, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by a Russian-born U.S. intelligence expert who has worked with both the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA as an analyst. We're going to be talking about Russia. The one question is we try to sort of muddle through the events of the last 30, 40 days is why? Uh, there's been speculation about, you know, NATO potential membership by Ukraine, and that's got Putin upset. But it, you really invade a country and, and kill hundreds of people for that? Wasn't there a different way the point could be made? Or is there perhaps a different point? We're going to talk about that. Rebecca Koffler joins us coming up later on in tonight's program. But I want to start tonight with a topic that perhaps you're even in your circles hearing more about. Certainly there seems to be increased awareness on the issue of human trafficking. I think more and more people are becoming sensitive to it. But do they fully understand exactly what it is, and most importantly, how to address it, how to combat it? With some insights on this topic, Dr. Sandra Morgan joins us. She's director of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. She has served in law enforcement and is the author of this new book, co-author, Ending Human Trafficking, a Handbook for Strategies for the Church Today, published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you for the invitation. You know, this this broader topic uh, maybe perhaps best put in terms of, of definitions here, and, and, I, and I, I'm going in this direction as an opening question because I think that sometimes people hear language like human trafficking, and it perhaps kind of downplays to a degree the impact of what this is really about. When we speak of human trafficking, at the core, aren't we really talking about a form of modern-day slavery? Absolutely. However, the legal definitions are really important for people to understand because human trafficking, just like drug trafficking and weapons trafficking, is aimed at prohibiting the sale of something that shouldn't be sold. And so if you're interested, I can lay out the legal framework. 
I think it's important, and I'm glad you make that distinction because, to see, suddenly when you put it in the context of other types of illegal trafficking activities, such as illegal gun trafficking, illegal drug trafficking, I think maybe it helps people get a little clearer understanding that this is not simply just the matter of, of um, trading and selling and moving individuals around like we're, you know, part of a, a courier service. There's something darker, deeper, and, and far more insidious going on here. Absolutely. And I really just have to um, piggyback on that insidious. Um, this is an economic crime driven by greed that exploits other human beings. Um, there's really a structure that has three elements to provide the legal framework. There's an act, what is done. Somebody recruited, transported, harbored, obtained another human being for labor, services, or a commercial sex act. And they do that, the how of it, the means, is usually force, fraud, or coercion. That's how they um, recruit somebody and how they control them. And those threats, um, the, if you imagine right now, you mentioned that you're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine very soon. And those refugees are desperate to protect their families and very vulnerable to fraud when someone says, we have a place for you and you'll have a job, and then they find out it isn't legitimate. And then the third element is why, the purpose. Um, if someone is able to exploit another person for free labor, they don't have to pay for their, um, the workers in their factory or their plantation. And if they're selling commercial sex, um, they're making money. So it's all about profit. And that kind of greed is what drives human trafficking today. We've had cases, I think most notably here in the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a, um, shall we say, infamous madam that uh, not only eventually became mayor of a local community, but pushed quite heavily for the quote-unquote rights of women who choose, quote-unquote, to work in the sex industry, as if how to suggest that this is not much different than deciding to get a job working in retail sales for, say, um, you know, a large chain of department stores or deciding to study interior decorating and pick up clients so that you can give them advice on color schemes in their home. I mean, there's almost a sense of trying to normalize this. And I think people sometimes hear that and say, well, you know, in our, our very modern way of thinking and quite frankly and arguably a post-Christian environment, it seems as if sometimes people make excuses for all of this as if somehow those participating are doing so willingly. Shed some light on that, if you would, Dr. Morgan. Wow. I love this question. Um and feel free to call me Sandy. That's what everybody calls me. But um, the uh, the difference between uh, the terminology, whether you use sex worker or prostitute or commercial sexual exploitation, the language matters. In the law, the legal framework, we're using terminology around exploitation. 
So there is commercial sexual exploitation of adults or CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children. And because trafficking is an economic crime, it is about people making money at the expense of another person and certainly based on human rights and human dignity. But when you use commercial sexual exploitation terminology, you understand that this is a business that profits on sexual exploitation. And when that involves a minor under the age of 18, a child, then it we don't even have to prove those elements that I mentioned already in the legal framework. Um, when we use terminology around prostitution, we understand that that definition is a choice. It is that person has agency. Some, um, some language around anti-trafficking is based on using a form of the word prostitution and saying people are prostituted, so it's happening to them. Um, and some of my friends have explained they use that terminology because it's too much work to explain commercial sexual exploitation. But I'm a professor, so I'm going to go to the extra work to explain that to you and your listeners. The I just um, resonate with you. I'm very concerned about language that normalizes this as a job. Well, and precisely yeah. so. I mean, I, and I'm glad you use the term exploitation because at least it gives everybody a sense of what's truly taking place here. And at the end of the day, another thing, and again, I understand that, you know, there's there's a tendency to want to shorthand all of this because it can get a bit unwieldy, but, but words matter. And, and if we're trying to somehow use language um, to shorthand things that ends up taking the bite or the sting out of what's happening, I think that's a big mistake. I mean, a- after all, when we talk about what's taking place here and we contextualize it in terms of, well, this is someone's daughter, this is someone's son in some cases, and begin to realize that it's not voluntary, it's exploitation, it's manipulation, it's greed, it's taking advantage of another human being and, and stripping them of, of, of their dignity at so many levels. And I think toward that end, it, it should give us a sense of not just how galling all of this is, that we ought to be, I think, very much bothered by the fact that this is going on. And, and you are um, right on target with this language issue and how do we manage that. We do it with lots of education in our communities and helping people understand the exploitative nature of this. And the um, you guys actually have a Bay Area anti-trafficking coalition and... Um, Betty Ann Hagenau is the founder, and I've worked with her, and they do amazing work in your area. So it's a great group for your listeners to get involved with. Yes. In fact, we we air a program on Saturdays here on KFAX hosted by uh, Vanessa Ruffel. 
um, that um, specifically is designed to help educate listeners on the broader subject of, of human, human trafficking and exploitation, and most importantly, how the church can and should be responding. That is indeed the focus of a new book co-authored by my guest tonight, Dr. Sandra Morgan, called Ending Human Trafficking, a Handbook of Strategies for the Church Today. And as much as we're talking about important lessons related to what this is and how to describe it, there are perhaps also some very important lessons that the church needs to learn when we engage in this sort of ministry. We'll talk about that as our conversation with Dr. Sandra Morgan continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Understanding that at the core, human trafficking is really exploitation, or more accurately put, modern-day slavery. And while some are perhaps overwhelmed by this topic, I think growing numbers of believers are coming to the understanding that we need to be involved here. We need to be on the front lines. But as we're learning from our guest tonight, Dr. Sandra Morgan, co-author of Ending Human Trafficking, a Handbook of Strategies for the Church Today, and director of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University, this is complex and it is layered. And perhaps to that point, you can take us a little bit deeper into the issue of the church getting involved. Uh, There are many fine organizations that undoubtedly are sensitive to this issue and focus on rescue work, which is extremely important. But in my mind, Dr. Morgan, and correct me if I'm wrong here, in my mind, rescue work is, you know, basically one leg of a three-legged stool that most necessarily has to include education and preventative work, no? Absolutely. I love that illustration of one leg of a three-legged stool. And you actually introduced the concept of manipulation earlier that I just want to go back to that because when we look at rescue, we think there's people um, waving their hands and saying, come and get me, come and get me. And many times because of that psychological manipulation, they don't see themselves as victims. And they don't understand that there's going to be someone who will help take them out of their situation and put them on a pathway to full restoration. So I think that education, especially in the church, of our role in prevention, early intervention, and collaboration in our community, that's really critical. Does this necessitate as well, and I'm going to have you slip on your your, um, law enforcement hat here for a moment, Sandy, does this also necessitate um, having a high degree of training to get involved with it? And I ask that question because, uh, well, let's put it this way. A person can see folks that are on the street that are homeless and hungry and can run down to the local grocery store, get some day-old bread, go home, make some sandwiches, pass them out, maybe uh, pray with people, and uh, can be quite effective at that. When we talk about homeless people from the standpoint of, say, uh, drug or alcohol abuse, they may be addicts that now require more than a sandwich and prayer. They require a long-term program, uh, detoxification, things of this sort. So 
it feels like the same type of ministry, but in reality, they're two very different ministries. And I'm wondering if sometimes churches, in a sense of, of, of eagerness, that want to run down and, you know, if they see prostitutes in the, the Tenderloin of San Francisco, head down there on a Saturday night and go pray for people. But does it require degrees of, of um, training in order to be most effective? Absolutely. And there's room for everybody to be part of the collaboration. Um, if you have a chance to get this book, we are three authors, but we also reflect the stories of survivors and experts from law enforcement and victim service providers and the church and community in this. And I think um, understanding that the most vulnerable, those people with substance use disorders and people that are homeless, they're very vulnerable to being recruited and, as you use the word, manipulated into situations where they're exploited for labor or for sex. And the more we understand that, we can intervene in ways that are really effective before they become victims. You speak in the book about the risk of individuals falling off the cliff, and you spend some time talking about creating a, a safety net or a safety fence. Uh, is that sort of the, the third leg of the stool here, Sandy, from an educational standpoint? From, from you know, Because it's one thing to intervene once a crisis has happened. It's great if the fire department shows up to put out the fire, but if you take a couple of basic steps to not accidentally set the house on fire when you're cooking, that's probably the, the, the better route. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. In fact, this idea of the cliff... Um, it's a financial choice as well. <clears throat> and as members of our community, we want to use our resources well. And if we wait for people to fall off the cliff, we're going to be calling those rescue services like ambulances and healthcare providers and law enforcement and case managers. Um, but why wait at the bottom of the cliff? Why not go up and build a fence so that people don't fall off? so that we do education with kids who are in our foster service programs, kids who are in, in our schools in really vulnerable neighborhoods. Single moms, I always tell I love challenging pastors to look six blocks around them and find uh, a single mom and find out what she needs because there are single moms whose kids are more vulnerable and they're for that matter also vulnerable and they may be one car repair away from not being able to pay their rent and having to make a really unsafe decision and and you know that goes right to the heart of of the other complexity in this in terms of of prevention and that is that there are many cases where people become or 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 tend to be more vulnerable because of a layer or a level of dis desperation related to financial circumstances and if you're trying to care for your family and your back is against the wall financially and you see no way out and now all of a sudden you're afforded this quote unquote opportunity. That's, that's, right. that's, that's a, that's that's a right. tremendous way for people to, that, are, that are already vulnerable at so many 
layers to then really be exploited because once they get into the life, the the money, I would imagine, as much as we even see um, high levels of drug addiction as well in that life, uh, but that, that, um, that access to that money, that's difficult to wean off of, isn't it? Absolutely. But for the most part, those that are being exploited, they don't get to put that in a bank account. That goes to the trafficker and is um, used to keep the trafficked person um, fed and housed and get their hair done, their nails done, so they're more attractive because that's part of a business model. And I, I think, too, when we're thinking about the church and the role in prevention and early intervention, thinking about how we can be part of building that safe defense is one of our first responsibilities as citizens and as Christians. The book, Ending Human Trafficking, a handbook of strategies for the church today. It has been published and released by University Press and co-authored by my guest today, Dr. Sandra Morgan. Information available, by the way, online at endinghumantrafficking.org. That's endinghumantrafficking.org. Yes, the church needs to be involved. Yes, it's vital to do rescue work, but it's even more critical to do preventative work and realize that, as we said before, these are someone's daughters, someone's sons in some cases, that are being exploited into what is the equivalent of modern-day slavery. So join the fight. Start by getting educated. Again, the book called Ending Human Trafficking, a handbook handbook of strategies for the church today, and more information available online at endinghumantrafficking.org. Our thanks to co-author Dr. Sandra Morgan, director of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ukraine's president loudly condemning Russian military atrocities in his battered country, speaking virtually to the U.N. Security Council. Vladimir Zelensky said that Russia has been targeting and killing civilians, including children. He referred to Bucha, where hundreds of civilians were found dead and again accused Russia of committing war crimes. Zelensky has called on the U.N. to do its job and maintain peace. Certainly, more than a month into this ongoing conflict... It not only raises questions about the end and when will it be in sight, but also broader questions pertaining to what the next game plan is for Vladimir Putin. While this is perhaps the largest scale and most violent incursion into neighboring countries, for Putin's Russia, it certainly isn't the first. He's gone into Georgia, Crimea, Chechnya, Syria, Moldova, and now Ukraine. Is this all a part of a bigger, broader, wider scheme unfolding at the direction of Vladimir Putin? That's the big question we're going to attempt to answer tonight. And joining us with some incredible insights is a Russian-born U.N. intelligence expert who has worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency as an analyst specializing in Russian politics. She is also the author of a brand new book called Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. 
newly released by Regnery Press. Rebecca Colfer, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Happy to be here with you, Craig, and your audience. Rebecca, you bring a tremendous amount of background, knowledge, history, experience. You were born in Russia. Uh, If I I read correctly, uh, prior to the Soviet collapse in 19... 91. So you, you bring a lot to the table here today. And, and maybe the bigger, broader question that I'd like to start out with tonight, and then we can kind of uh, pick through the individual pieces of what's going on. I, I look at the events that transpired from the collapse of communism, the first sort of domino to fall in Romania in December of 1989 and in through 1990 and eventually the collapse of the Soviet Union itself in 1991. And I've got to imagine that somebody who had worked as a KGB analyst that now is running the country must, number one, think that Gorbachev and uh, and his successor, Boris Yeltsin, are to blame for um, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and that he... Vladimir Putin is going to be the guy who puts it all back together again. Is that wild fantasy, or is there some degree of that observation that is a truism in terms of what we're seeing unfold in in uh, Ukraine today? You absolutely nailed it, uh, Craig. It is uh, Vladimir Putin's strategic ambition to reconstitute a uh, supranational alliance similar to the former Soviet Union, whereby countries like Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, uh, Belarus, the Stans, and uh, most of them would go back under Moscow's control. As you mentioned, Putin is a former KGB operative. He had uh, several life experiences and professional experiences that demonstrated to him that uh, strength and uh, ability to fight back, even when you're a corner like a rat, um, is uh, very important. And that's what we see today with regard to Ukraine. Uh, Putin's playbook is unfolding right now right in front of our eyes. You know, there, there's a couple of interesting examples from history that, that maybe we can talk about that will allow you to help shed more light on some of the core motivation here. One that comes to mind is, and, and, and you can answer this because you're, you're, you're Russian, it was the collapse of the USSR for Russian people as much of an embarrassment as, say, the defeat in World War One to Germany was? Uh, yes. It was um, a huge psychological blow to uh, the Russian people. The Russians believe that they are an exceptional nation, just like Americans believe that the um, uh, U.S. is uh, exceptional and so do the Russians. Why is that? They have uh, contributed to world literature, culture, tremendous technological achievements, and uh, most importantly, they believe that because they won the World War II, what they call the Great Patriotic War, that the West 
kind of owes them because they think that they saved the world from Nazism, from Hitler, and they have a chip on their shoulders, and they always wanted to uh, basically reverse the outcome of the Cold War and make Russia great again. And this is why they have elected Putin four times. And it's interesting because for Putin as a motivator, while I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Rebecca, I think that he was born post-World War II, but he grew up in St. Petersburg, a city that during the height of World War II had been battered and bruised by the Germans pretty significantly. And I would imagine in that period of time thereafter, the conclusion of World War II, that there was a lot of ongoing pain and suffering and and a a huge recovery process for the Russians. I mean, uh, of all the countries that lost soldiers during World War II, um, it's, it's, you know, without debate that Russia suffered the greatest losses, although sadly a lot of those losses were at the hand of Joseph Stalin himself during many of the the so-called purges, in some cases orchestrated by Hitler because he played upon Stalin's fears and was able to plant misinformation to lead Stalin to believe that he had enemies within the military and therefore there would be these huge programs that would would eliminate uh, large swaths of of upper leadership within the Russian army. But I'm, I'm wondering if... Some of this is Putin being raised at a time post-World War II when much of the pain and suffering of the war was still very fresh, and, and therefore that too perhaps um, informing or, or influencing his motivations today. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. Uh, the experience that his family and he himself had uh, in the aftermath of World War II absolutely shaped uh, Putin's character and his worldview. During the blockade of uh, St. Petersburg, the um, Germans basically uh, ensured that the Russians did not have any food at all. Um, Putin's own mother nearly died from starvation, and in fact, because she fainted being so hungry, um, the people around her uh, threw her body into a pile of corpses, thinking that she was dead. Uh, Miraculously, she survived. But uh, Putin's younger two brothers died when they were infants, you know, from starvation and some other, you know, illnesses. So the devastation that Putin experienced himself shaped who he is, and um, it convinced him that he always needs to make sure that Russia is Strong. Um, he, as you know, several times said that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century. And he is the guy. He deems himself just like Catherine the Great, you know, um, Vladimir uh, himself, the prince who brought Christianity to uh, Russia. He deems himself he's just going to exactly do just that. 
and make Russia great again and make it respected on the world stage. And he pretty much achieved it, you know, until this war that he's waging on Ukraine. And now Russia has become a pariah. Yeah, and, and I have to wonder, we can get to this uh, after we come back after the break, Rebecca, but, but no doubt many are wondering the failures that we've seen in Ukraine over the last 30 or 40 days. Uh, you know, uh, Some have speculated this was Putin caught by surprise, misinformed by his own intelligence services, or is there something bigger and deeper going on here? Putin says we're withdrawing, and yet the battle continues. And so we have to wonder if maybe there are aspects of all of this that are far more calculated and orchestrated than perhaps what meets the eye. If you've just joined us, Rebecca Koffler is with us today, a Russian-born U.S. intelligence expert. She has worked with both the Defense Intelligence Agency as well as the Central Intelligence Agency and has authored a new book called Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. It's a page-turner, to be sure, very well-informed, and a book that perhaps will set you back on your heels when you begin to realize just how broad and deep the designs are of Vladimir Putin to make Russia great again. We'll take a brief time out. When we return, the current conflict and the failures by the Russian military in Ukraine, caught by surprise or calculated? I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with author Rebecca Koffler continues as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Listening to that editorial there that just coincidentally happened to be scheduled by our um, crack <laughs> traffic department uh, during this time, it, 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 it strikes me that, yeah, we've heard this before, Ukraine has a Nazi problem. Guess what? Germany has a Nazi problem. And people forget about the fact that the German Bund organization back in the 1930s in this country were able to fill Madison Square Garden with pro-Nazis, Americans on American soil, months prior to German attack on Poland. So I guess it's all a matter of perspective. That said, this, of course, is being used out of context by Putin as an excuse to invade Ukraine, But as we're learning from our guest expert tonight, Rebecca Koffler, um, there's much more going on here. Rebecca, by the way, is the author of a new book called Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America, newly released by Regnery Press. I want to come back to this notion. Uh, the Russian military, perhaps the incursion into Afghanistan notwithstanding where at least the Russians proved they were smarter than us. They only stayed for 10. We stayed for 20. And both had about the same success rate. But I have to wonder, looking at things sort of completely falling apart on the Russian military, it isn't the image of who we think the Russian military is. And from your perspective, do you think some of these extreme failures um, has caught Putin by surprise? Or are there aspects of all of this that's calculated? Well, there's definitely some miscalculation on behalf of Putin and his intelligence services. And that miscalculation relates to their inability to um, have anticipated how hard the Ukrainians were going to fight and how strong uh, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was and his ability to galvanize Ukrainians to fight back. 
So that is clearly miscalculation. With regard to Russia's performance, tactically, uh, there's really nothing new, to be honest with you, uh, Craig. The Russians' uh, way of war is entirely different than um, our uh, warfighting style. Uh, we are very precise, you know, the American men and women in uniform are the best warfighting force in military history. Uh, our command and control is superb, our intelligence, we can find a needle in the stack of needles. Remember, we found Osama bin Laden, even if it took us 10 years. So um, we do not target civilians, we do everything possible to uh, do surgical strikes. Um, the Russians are not that way. Remember how they fought in Chechnya, you know, the same type of atrocities that we see here. Remember how they fought in Georgia, you mentioned, uh, in 2008. They couldn't even strike mobile targets. They're just not as technically savvy. But when you look at the strategic picture, right, what was the primary reason why uh, Putin went into Ukraine? And many people just simply misunderstand it because Washington has not been honest about that. Just like Putin has been lying that uh, the primary reason is denazification of Ukraine that he went into, um, Washington has been talking about uh, democracy, that Putin has been afraid of democracy. Well, Ukraine, just like Russia, are not in danger to become democracy anytime soon, and no more than Afghanistan uh, was uh, uh, becoming a democracy. And so, really, Putin did not want um, Ukraine to become part of NATO. And so, if you look at it today, he has achieved that goal. As long as he is pounding, you know, on Ukraine, obliterating cities, uh, Ukraine is not going to become part of NATO. And that's his ultimate objective that he is achieving at this time, even though tactically it's a disaster for them. During the height of the Cold War, and all of us that grew up during that period of time always had a sense of mad mutually assured destruction, meaning that as much saber-rattling might go on in Washington, D.C., or in Moscow, for that matter, in the end, everybody kind of had the sense that, yeah, the big guy is not going to press the red button because he knows if they drop a bomb on Chicago or New York, we're going to retaliate and we're going to make a crater where Moscow used to be. More so, though, of recent times, since this incursion into Ukraine, there seems to be a ramping up of concern that maybe, maybe Vladimir Putin is the first Russian leader since Stalin to potentially carry through using a, a, a nuclear weapon. Do you think that's, that's just uh, verbosity, or is there perhaps some degree of potential truth to that threat? There's definitely a high degree of truth. Uh, it is my professional intelligence assessment that Putin at this time is mulling over uh, using nuclear warfare in order to bring this conflict to an end. Why is that? Putin is feeling like a cornered rat. 
things are not going well for him. He has not been able to decapitate the Zelensky government as he originally planned. Um, and the Ukrainians are now, in fact, pushing back. Western uh, leaders, including our own chief executive, uh, President Joe Biden, have been talking about um, and insinuating, you know, regime change. Uh, President Biden recently said, uh, this man can not remain in power. Previously, Senator um, Lindsey Graham, whom I highly respect, but uh, I think he um, had a little bit of uh, undisciplined tongue when he called on the Russian people to rise up and, you know, uh, remove Putin. Nobody's going to remove Putin. Um, Putin's approval rating has been skyrocketing since um, um, his war on Ukraine started. And so this is what's indicating to Putin that an off-ramp is not available to him. And with the most recent um, allegations of war crimes, right, it is clear to Putin that um, he needs to fight back no matter what. Yes, Putin deserves to burn in hell, and he, and he will. But all of these, um, you know, narratives are signaling to him that even if he were to settle, which I don't believe he is ready to do, um, he is not going to be able to sleep peacefully. And uh, some terrible things are waiting, you know, for him, potentially criminal, uh, international criminal court proceedings and things of that nature. And uh, that is what's driving his decision and the Russian military doctrine uh, envisions the use of tactical nuclear weapons in a situation precisely that we're experiencing right now. And I describe the, those scenarios in my book uh, in great detail. And in the end, uh, you know, Putin controls the military, as we know. He controls the press in Russia. He controls the police in Russia. And while younger people born post-1991 may not have a strong recollection, uh, older Russians certainly do recall what life was like in the Soviet Union. And, and the notion of trying to, to somehow engage in a rise-up, even though, I, you know, I think all of us in the West that, that love democracy have been thrilled about some of the early protests that happened um, by the Russian people trying to tell their government, no, we don't agree with this. But, of course, all that met with people being rounded up and, and tossed in jail. So I, I can't imagine a scenario where there's going to be regime change taking place in Russia. That might be something we can hope for, but the likelihood of that happening is probably slim to none. What in your sense, then, in your mind, Rebecca, is going to be the end game here? I mean, we know the broader plan, but the problem, of course, now is that it's not gone to Putin's plan. The playbook, of course, must have been missing a few pages. And so trying to extract himself from this and save face is going to be very difficult. So what are we talking about? A protracted war in Ukraine that can go from weeks to months to years? Supremely difficult, um, Craig. As long as we keep providing support to Ukraine, uh, Putin cannot win. But Putin also is not willing to settle and save face. This is just not who he is. It's not a 
single war that Vladimir Putin has lost. And so this is exactly what's going to happen, what you just said, a long, protracted, grinding battle uh, where uh, many Ukrainians are going to continue to die. You know, he's going to continue to commit these atrocities. And it's a deliberate part of his military strategy, targeting civilians, that is. He wants, he being uh, Putin, to compel Zelensky to abandon the fight by um, continuing the suffering, inflicting this unconscionable suffering on the Ukrainian people. And so what we have today is the battle of the wealth. Vladimir against Volodymyr, okay? They have tremendous personal disdain for each other, and this conflict is simply not going to go anywhere because currently the positions of uh, Zelensky and Putin are irreconcilable. Neither one of them is ready to really negotiate and settle, and so uh, regretfully the Ukrainian people are going to continue to be slaughtered because these two cannot come to any kind of settlement. Wow. Uh, Very sobering insights offered by our guest today, Rebecca Koffler. Now, you want to go a bit deeper on this? I think we should because this is going to be the new world that we're dealing with for a long time to come. Her experience, having been born in Russia, having worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency, as well as an analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency specializing in Russia. All detailed inside the pages of a new book called Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. So now that you've heard this conversation, that plan is perhaps not as secret as we once thought. The book, available through Regnery Press, owned by the same fine folks that own this radio station. You can order it online through regnery.com or through the usual suspects, including amazon.com. Rebecca, thank you so much for the time and the insights. It's been a very informative and engaging conversation. We appreciate so much you taking some time and sharing uh, with our listeners today. 602 from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.